or that way. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew. We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. Thankful that you have taken time out of your week to join us. I trust that the Lord will encourage your hearts and strengthen you this morning to love him more and to be more satisfied with who he is. As we come to this section in Matthew, let me just lay the context for you a little bit and we can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the audience that's uh, engaging as Jesus interacts with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, at this point of his ministry, is turning a major corner. In Matthew 12, you see the rising of opposition. So you begin to see uh, Jesus more combative with the scribes and Pharisees. You see them more antagonistic to him. Up until this point, they were kind of unsure of him. At this point, they become certain, and he declares publicly that they're enemies. He identifies them as children of vipers. It's not exactly a, hey, I don't know where you're coming from. That's a very clear statement of Jesus towards these spiritual leaders, that they're on the wrong side of things. And so from here on out, we'll see Jesus in growing opposition and hostility with the spiritual leaders of Israel. And so chapter 12, you have Matthew laying out for us again and again and again that Jesus and these spiritual leaders are on totally different pages when it comes to who God is and what God's plan is for Israel. So I'm going to begin reading. If you come with me down to verse 38 of chapter 12, and as you you put your finger there and we're just to think back for the last 15 or so verses, Jesus, having done miracles and healed a man who is oppressed by a demon, they accuse Jesus in the, in the doing of that act to be in concert with hell itself. So rather than acknowledging that Jesus is doing this as God's agent, they're trying to turn the tables and discredit him in front of all of these people. Jesus says, listen, you are children of the devil. You are vipers. And then he says, and you identify yourself by your words and your actions because out of your heart, your mouth speaks words. Our words reveal our hearts. They have identified themselves as enemies of Jesus and therefore they're enemies not only of Jesus, God's son, but of God himself. So now we come to verse 38 and they set him up again with purpose here. They're trying to set him up in the wrong. And so they say, uh, then some of the scribes and Pharisees, verse 38, answered him saying, teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at their preaching of Jonah, and behold, something, that, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, you might be familiar with the, the phrase queen of Sheba, Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This text, text lays down Jesus' strong judgment against these spiritual leaders. And it starts out with something that maybe you wouldn't think of as deserving judgment. They begin by coming to Jesus and say, show us a sign. 
Show us some symbol or token of, of you being who you say you are. Show us. And Jesus' response is startling, isn't it? He says, an evil and adulterous generation are seeking a sign. What are we to make of Jesus' point here? Well, throughout the Old Testament and into the New, God has continually demonstrated who he is through miracles and signs and through wonders. In fact, John identifies signs that show us who Jesus is. So you might be asking, why is it wicked for them to ask for a sign? Well, I just want you to go back into verse 22 of this passage. Look what it says here. demon-oppressed man was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. Now, this is just regular people, not the religious leaders. And they say, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he does these things. So Jesus has done this incredible miracle. He has removed a demon-oppressed man from the demon, cleaned up this man's life, and they look at this and they turn it on its corner and say, no, this is actually by the power of hell that you did this thing. Do they want a sign? Isn't this a sign? Even just the regular, the, the, the normal, the not theologically deep, the people who are not entrenched in the Old Testament, even just the standard bystander says, clearly this is David's son. This is the promised Messiah, clearly. And yet the leaders are the ones who are twisting it for their own advantage. I would suggest to you that there is a danger that these spiritual leaders have of always wanting more, of always needing a little bit more proof, of always wanting just additional information, not because they need additional information, but in fact, because they don't like the information they have. And if I were going to just state this as a point in the sermon, it would be this. Unbelief is dissatisfied with revealed truth. Perhaps you have a friend who's a skeptic, an atheist, someone who says, well, I could believe if. And they'll fill in with something else they want, but there's, there's this lack of satisfaction with what God has already given. So read that mindset into the question here. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They're not satisfied. He just healed a man blind and dumb. The man could neither speak nor see. He's oppressed by a demon. Jesus comes in and without any effort, without breaking of sweat, removes the powers of hell from this man and frees him and liberates him from the oppression of Satan. And they're like, ah, we need more. They didn't need more. What they really wanted was a different Jesus. They were dissatisfied with what God had given them. And this is why they're considered a wicked and adulterous generation. In fact, look with me in, verse, in chapter 16. You'll see the same exact storyline repeat itself. Sixteen one. the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. This testing is not test to approve, it's test to discredit. So a bad teacher in school will give you a test knowing you will fail with a purpose of showing you you're a failure. A good teacher might give you a test to promote your study. A good teacher might give you a test to expose to you what you do know in a way that reveals to you, hopefully, that you've mastered the material. 
This is the type of test intended to trip Jesus up. And here's the response. He answered them and said, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So his point in chapter 16 is the same as chapter 12. They know enough about the world around them that they can see this, the, the color of the sky at night and predict the next day's weather. They rise up in the morning, they see the, the, the sky, and they can say it's going to be a good day or a bad day. They know how to evaluate the world around them accurately. But they are spiritually darkened to who Jesus Christ is. He is displaying who he is in front of them, and they always want more. You say, well, why? And Jesus gives two words of condemnation to them in chapter 12. He says, you are a what generation? A wicked and adulterous. If you think about this in terms of what he's really trying to tell them, there are two ways in which they fall short of what God's asking for them. They're wicked. Their measuring stick of what they expect the Messiah to be is flawed. It's twisted. What do they want in the Messiah? Well, if you know historically where they're at, they're oppressed by the Romans. They are under the boot of Rome, and specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees are in positions of power. They want Jesus to align with them and promote them. They want to be generals in the entourage of the king. They don't want to be servants. And they want to make sure this king is not the Roman king, but the Jewish king, so that they are the rulers of Israel. They are the honored, the exalted. Their measuring tape, by which they're measuring the Messiah, is flawed because it's driven by their own selfish desires. They are wicked by measuring God by their desires rather than by the revealed truth of God. Now, that statement should land heavily on our culture. They are wicked because their measurement of what God should be is a measurement rooted in their fleshly desires for pride and power rather than in God's revealed truth. Any message of supposed good news, any revelation that claims to be from God that grants you your desires for pride of position and place is from hell. Now, that's a long sentence, so I'll try to simplify it. If the gospel you hear appeals to your own sinful desires, it is not God's gospel. If the good news you hear is actually good news that makes you feel good on this earth, it's not God's news. I think this is significant because at times the church will fall prey to this desire to please people. The measuring stick by which our world asks itself if it wants to go to church, if it wants to be part of this organization, if it likes this preaching, if it likes this message from God, is a measurement that's rooted in what we want. The problem with this people in front of Jesus is the king is standing in front of them and they say he's not good. If you find fault with Jesus, 
the fault is in your eyes. If you don't like who God is, it is not because God is not good and glorious. It is because you have a twisted measure. You are an evil measurer, and it reflects more about you than it does the goodness of God. If you are dissatisfied with who God is, the problem is not God. They want different. They want a measure of a Messiah that makes them feel and be good. So what do you do if you're dissatisfied with this Messiah? He calls them not only wicked because their measure is wrong, he calls them adulterous. So an adulteress is someone who cheats on her spouse. And here's the picture. These are, these are God's people. These are Pharisees and, and religious leaders in God's family. Right? They're, they're teaching in the place of God. They're opening up the Old Testament scriptures and speaking of Yahweh. They're speaking of the Lord. They're speaking for his name. And yet, what are they doing? Do they want him? No, they want someone else. I mean, they might call him the Lord, but the someone else they want is not the Lord. The illustration of adulteress makes it clear. It is like they are stepping out on God to find joy in the arms of another lover, all the while saying they are faithful to their spouse. Boy, that is trashy and evil. And it's easy for us to look back at them and just be disgusted by their spiritual lack of satisfaction with the Jesus who is the Son of God, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who presents himself as their Messiah because he's not scratching the itches they want him to scratch. That's disgusting. Now, the Bible does not hold up its mirror-like work so that we can see through the Pharisees and be disgusted by them but so that God might reveal to us maybe where we are dissatisfied, maybe where we are falling short. If you think that God somehow owes you happiness, wealth, a sweet home filled with little obedient rugrats that say yes sir and yes ma'am and clean up after themselves, a spouse that adores you, a job where you're constantly getting promoted and raises every year, neighbors that like you, politicians who will let Christianity run free and promote it. If that's what you think God has promised you, you are reading another book. God, in fact, has said, if we will live a godly life, we will suffer. Scripture says we are to shine as lights in the middle of In the middle of what? Okay, so like just, just recognize on Facebook, it's like darkness explodes, and you're like, what is wrong with our world? It's dark is what's wrong with it, and it needs a Savior. And you should know that if you read the Scripture. And you should know that God did not promise you to have your best life now. He promises you heaven to come, right? And, and yet we have a Christianity that sells itself and markets itself, and publicizes itself by appealing to the base instincts that an unbeliever who is living in darkness and loves darkness and wants not the light would come to. 
Who wants to come to a broken Savior who dies on the cross and says, come, be humbled and broken like me. Follow me, take up your cross, die to your own desires, and be like me. Who wants that? That doesn't appeal to anything I want. And the cross killed you by torturing you naked in front of the public for three or four days before you die, exhausted, broken, and barely human. And Jesus is like, hey, strap it on. Let's do this thing. The Pharisees are saying, no. We want to be glorious. We want to be blessed by people. We want to have wealth and happiness. We got no room for that type of Messiah. Can we throw him back and get another one? Can we get a redo here? Because this is not the Messiah we want. This ask for a sign is merely cover for their wicked hearts and desire for a God who serves them. Forgive the illustration here from Disney. But if you've seen Aladdin, this is what they want in a God. They want an all-powerful, almighty God that's shackled to their desires, who says, Master, and pleases them by granting them their wishes. God will not be shackled. He is not here for you. You exist for him. God is not bound to your wishes. He is God, and he is gloriously free, and he is not a slave to our desires nor will we be able to make him our slave. And that should delight us. Would you really want a God who, like a puppy, could be domesticated and trained? Because if he is, he is not God of the universe. Our God is free. Jesus sees their, their measure of what they want in a Messiah and their desire to chase what they want in a Messiah as evil and adulterous Unbelief is dissatisfied with revealed truth. It always wants more. He gives two examples of both Jonah and Bathsheba. I want to deal with Jonah first because I think Jonah reveals to us something a little bit different than Bathsheba. Sorry, I'm saying Bathsheba, the queen of Sheba. Excuse me for that. But if we go on in verse 39, you'll see that this wicked and adulterous generation is blind to the sign of the times. He says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. So look in verse 39 with me at the end. It says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, it seems contradictory there. No sign, but this one. Mark actually says no sign at all. It doesn't include this idea of Jonah. So here's the point. They want an immediate proof. They want like an immediate prophecy. They, they want some kind of um, test by which Jesus would say, tomorrow I'll do this, and then tomorrow this happens, or tomorrow um, Herod will do this, and then tomorrow Herod does it. They want some immediate kind of proofing. That satisfies their desires for Messiah. And again, would they be satisfied? No, because the issue is not he hasn't done enough to prove who he is. The issue is they don't like who he proves himself to be. So we come to this sign of Jonah. Look again in verse 39. He's given it to sign. Then it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In fact, the Hebrew in Jonah, I think it's chapter 2, verse 3, says Jonah was in the heart of the sea. So you get this strong parallel. Jesus will be in the heart of the earth for three days. Jonah was in the heart of the sea for three days. 
And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It's worth unpacking this. I think you'll find this enjoyable because Jesus is making a strong prophetic point here with Jonah. If you go back to the story of Jonah, and I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, but in essence, Jonah has been called by God as a prophet from Israel to go to the Assyrian capital, Nineveh. Nineveh is a wicked city. It's a violent city murdering innocent people. They are, they are militaristic, and they're the type of people you don't want to mess with, and they are staunch enemies who are threatening Israel's security and safety. And God says, I'm going to be gracious to them. Jonah, go and preach them repentance, or I'll destroy them. Now, if you're Jonah, and you hear, God will destroy this group of people, these enemies who are threatening to destroy Israel, if you don't go and preach to them, what might you think? Well, if I don't go preach, they get destroyed. Israel wins. This is a win-win. Jonah doesn't want to preach grace to the enemy. He wants God to burn them down. He's like, ready for Sodom and Gomorrah round two? Let's do this thing, God. I won't preach. You burn them. We'll be good. So Jonah hops in a boat, goes the opposite direction of, uh, of Assyria. So if you're thinking geographically, you have the, kind of the Mediterranean Sea, kind of the uh, eastern side of it. Nineveh is over here northeast of Israel. He gets on a boat and he's going like to lower Spain. Pretty much opposite direction. And God sends a storm. And in that storm reveals that he's doing this as a judgment against Jonah for his wicked disobedience and rebellion against God. And as Jonah is revealed from the Lord, he says, if you throw me into the sea, the Lord will be gracious to you and save you guys from the judgment. And so they throw him overboard. Jonah's in the ocean, Mediterranean Sea, for three days. And after three days, that fish spits him out, and he gets out on dry land. Now, I want you to think about what, what happens then in that picture, because this is the parallel with Christ. Jonah is pictured as under God's judgment for how long? Three days. When do you know God's judgment has been lifted? He comes out of the ocean, and he's on dry land. He marches to Nineveh, and in Nineveh, his preaching is worthless in the sense of like deep, rich exposition. His basic message is like three or four words in Hebrew, something like, God is going to kill you. But he himself is a message of grace. He's a rebel prophet that God judged but was gracious to when he repented. He himself is the sign of mercy. How do you know God is gracious to the rebel? Because if anyone had the revelation of God, it is a prophet of God who even despite that was willing to risk God's anger and full out rebellion to God. God judged him in the ocean, but was gracious when Jonah repented. Nineveh sees Jonah, as a preacher of grace, because he, in fact, is grace preached. He's just like, that's going to be me. I will be under God's condemnation as a rebel. 
I will be put on the cross and buried in the ground for three days under God's condemnation. And when I come out of the grave, it is grace preached. A greater grace. A greater mercy. You want to know if God's grace can reach you? You look to Jesus Christ and you see the man condemned on the cross for all of the sins of all of his people of all of the ages. No one has received greater damnation than Jesus Christ. And how do you know God's judgment is done with him? Because after being in the heart of the earth, he walks out victorious, freed from sin, paying the full price of all of the sin that was on him. And Jesus is the message of sins paid and grace offered. Here's the hope we have in Jesus Christ. God's wrath has been satisfied. Sin's debt has been paid. And anyone, even the most wicked of sinners, can stand before God fully forgiven because Jesus came out from under God's judgment when he came out of the grave. Now we look back and we can see Jesus saying, just like Jonah was under God's condemnation, came out of the ocean, the Son of Man is going to be under God's condemnation in the heart of the earth, and he's going to come out, and that's going to preach grace to the world. And we see that, and we're like, oh, wow, that's cool. And the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and appreciate the beauty of what Christ is showing them here. What is the response of the Pharisees to this? They are completely blind to it. Well, how do you know they're blind to it? Look again in the passage. The men of Nineveh, verse 41, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and do what? Condemn it. Jonah was in the belly of the whale because he rebelled. Jesus Christ was in the belly of the earth because all of us rebelled. Jonah didn't pay the price for anyone's sins. God's grace forgave him. Jesus Christ fully paid the price. And as the Son of God, when he marches out of that tomb, he is victorious over death itself. Who's the greater grace? Who's the greater Jonah or Jesus? No doubt for our hearts, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who died to free us from the condemnation. They look at Jesus Christ. If Nineveh is going to condemn them, it's because they don't accept him. How sad is that? You see, unbelief is deliberately blind to revealed truth. It's not just unsatisfied. It's deliberately blind. The sign of Jonah means nothing to them. It's going to fall on ears that aren't deaf because they can't hear. It's going to fall on ears like the little child who plugs his ears and sings a song loudly so he can't hear his mom say, clean your room. They're deliberately blind to the beauty of Christ, deliberately turning them off. And so they don't see the grace and the sign for what it is. Jesus himself is a sign of God's grace. And finally, you come to this last analogy, the queen of the south that I incorrectly called Bathsheba. That would be daughter of Sheba, by the way, if you're wondering about Bath in Hebrews, Bath or Bath is daughter, Sheba. So daughter of Sheba. But the queen of Sheba comes, or the queen of the south, and she'll rise up at the judgment because she came to hear Solomon. She came from the ends of the earth, it says, to hear Solomon. And Jesus says, and something greater 
then Solomon is here. Now, Solomon was a man gifted by God with wisdom. And the queen of the south, she comes because she's heard of this profound wisdom, this man who has insight from God into the world around him, to management of Israel, to the leadership of this country. And he is moving Israel, this tiny little country, the size of like Rhode Island, to be a player on the world scene. And she wants to come and, and she wants to figure this thing out. Now, the point would be this, is Solomon is a son of David. David has promised a son who will come who will be a rescuer and a king. And Solomon is not that son, but he's a son of David. And Solomon has wisdom from God. And Jesus is the son of David. He is the wisdom of God. Which one's the greater son? It's absolutely Jesus Christ. The prophesied son, the promised son, the one who would reign forever on David's throne is Jesus Christ. And he's here. And they can barely walk across the dirty street to go and hear from him. They have no desire to hear of his wisdom. They have no desire to hear him preach. They hear him preach and they turn him off in their minds. They look for ways in which to pin him in a corner and try to disprove his claims. They've set themselves up as enemies of the son of David rather than supplicants who want to hear his wisdom. Because unbelief is uninterested in the revealed truth. So we have this group of people who parades themselves in front of the nation of Israel as those who want God's truth, as those who understand God's truth, and yet when God's truth is speaking to them, as the son of David preaches to them, they are finding ways like lawyers to avoid the hard truth that this Jesus and Messiah is not like the one they want. They want one that will serve their interests. One that will be a slave to their own desires. They are not interested in how God reveals himself. They are not submissive to the scriptures. So unbelief is dissatisfied it is deliberately blind, and ultimately it's uninterested. Now, I, I look at the Pharisees, and it is, is super easy for me to condemn them. But then I consider my own heart. And I look at our Christian culture of, of genuine believers. Not, I'm not throwing stones at, at bad churches and, and bad people who call themselves pastors. And I just wonder how many times, even in our souls, we run to Scripture for what makes us feel good. How many times we look in Scripture so that we can help our children not be the bad children they are, because we just want to fix them so it's better for us as parents. We raise our children so that they stop bothering us rather than that they move to God. We raise them to be good athletes and good at academics and you know to be nice and kind to others because it's embarrassing when they're reveal who they really are to others. And it's all about us. When we come to the scriptures and read our Bible, are we doing it because we want to catch a glimpse of the glorious God of the scriptures? Or we just want him to fix our problems? Again, it's really easy for me to be a stone thrower rather than saying, hey, I got a little Pharisee in me too. 
If you were to stand in the ocean and watch the power of the ocean move as the sun sets behind it and just watch the beauty of God's creation for a few moments. And we were to take a couple, a couple of yous standing there. There's one part of you that's like, meh. Been here before, seen that before. When are we going to eat? Another part of your soul is captured. Because in the painted sky, in the power of the ocean, and the sound of its waves crashing, and the glory of the burning sun as it descends, there's something there that captivates your soul because of the beauty and the glory that no man can perfectly capture in painted art. And your soul for a moment worships and is satisfied and couldn't care less about what's for dinner. And then there's someone there with a phone who ruins everything. Isn't that it? That might be you. It's like you're a little bit of all of it. Right? Some of you comes to Scripture and you're just trying to do the diligent thing and read your Bible, but you're really just figuring out what you're going to do that day for work. You're trying to figure out how to get out of the house on time. Maybe you're worried about your spouse instead of your own soul. But you come to Scripture with, with a distracted agenda rather than to just consider God and have your faith strengthened by beholding the beauty and finding your soul satisfied with Him. And some of you just want to post it on Facebook so that everyone knows how satisfied you are. And part of your soul, if you're a believer, is satisfied and enjoys and delights in the glorious God of Scripture. Cultivate that delight. Deliberately turn towards it, believers, so that your soul grows in its capacity to love the God of Scripture. Guard yourself from the danger of looking at the glorious God of the Bible and saying, hey, he could be improved if. I would like him better if he would just fix my marriage. I would enjoy him more if he would just give us the president I think we should have. I would be satisfied only if he gave me a little bit more because the heart of unbelief is dissatisfied with what is given and wants more. I want to close with reading a couple psalms. The Psalms are intended to be a worship book. I'm going to go to Psalm 73. Then I'm going to go to Psalm 64. I think I said Psalm 37, but I might have said that backwards. Psalm 37. Look at verse 4 with me if you're there. Delight yourself. What are the next two words? Or three. Delight yourself where? In the Lord. What then happens as a consequence? And he will give you the desires of your heart. I think that order makes all of the difference in the world. When we come to God and our soul is deeply satisfied with him, he becomes the satisfying desire of our heart. But when we come 
first saying, satisfy me, then I'll be content with you, we have it upside down. Come to the Lord, delight yourself in him, and then he is righteous in giving and granting righteous desires, their fulfillment. Come with me to Psalm 63. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because of your steadfast love is better than light. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Just notice the longing of this worshiper's soul to just be present with his God. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the nights, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. We have twisted, shallow-hearted Pharisees showing us that they can stand in, in front of the God of creation and find him lacking. And it reflects more on them than it does Christ, doesn't it? It shows us more about them than it does about Jesus. Jesus is all satisfying. He will give us the desires of our heart when we are satisfied with him. When we enjoy and delight in him, he will give us what we want, but I guarantee you what you want will change when you find yourself satisfied with Jesus. We come as people who are dry and incapable on our own of finding satisfaction in anything, and Jesus Christ satisfies us, or you are never satisfied. Now, I think when we look at Jesus Christ's point in Matthew chapter 12, he is specifically speaking of revealed truth. He's already shown these men who he is. He's already revealed himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who heals, the one who breaks the powers of hell, the one who forgives sin and preaches repentance so that men can be reconciled to God. He's already revealed all of this truth in Matthew. And as Matthew lays it out, he shows these Pharisees that their problem is not with Jesus being satisfying. It's that their hearts are corrupted and twisted and evil. And so they're deliberately blind. They're deliberately unsatisfied because he's not the type of savior they want. And so Christians, just this simple thought. Do you find God's revealed word a satisfying place to delight in your God? Do you find the revelation of, of Jesus Christ, of who he is, 
of his ability to be present and forgive and strengthen, to give grace in the middle of trials rather than no trials, to be present with you in the middle of affliction rather than removing all affliction, of demanding that you worship him, not that he worship you. Do you find that Jesus satisfying? Because if you don't, there's probably in your soul a little struggle with unbelief. That's the Pharisees' problem ultimately, isn't it? They choose not to trust in Jesus because they are twisted in their measure and their desires are twisted to please themselves rather than serve God. As Christians, when we come to Scripture, I want to warn you of the dangers of pursuing, and I would say probably two types of things. You want kind of a little nugget that gives you joy and hope for the day. Just pursue a glimpse of God and his glory. He is all satisfying. And pursue the moment in which as you see God's glory, you put yourself way under it so that you worship him rather than stand in judgment over him. These Pharisees have totally un misunderstood their position. As the leaders of Israel, their job was to see God's revelation and submit to it. What they've done is seen God's revelation and judged it. And in so doing, they've made themselves liable to God's judgment forever. So just three kind of take-home truths. Respond with faith and obedience to what you already know. Some of you have been sitting in the scriptures for years. Submit in faith and obedience to what you already know. Trust that God has given you all that you need. There's, and I'm going to butcher this joke because I'm just bad with humor all over, so. Stand-up comedy has never tempted me. I'd be a poor, poor man if I ever did that. Just remember, and it, just, it, it, it very much is the Pharisees in this moment. I think it's us at times too. You know, a man is walking on the side of this uh, seaside cliff and he's watching the sunset and he falls. And as he's falling, he, he turns and reaches and grabs a root as he's over the edge. So he's hanging there by, just by this root that's slowly giving out. So he starts hollering and hollering for help. And finally, he hears a voice. He's like, who is it? He's like, really? Yeah, who is it? It's God. God, can you save me? Yes. Please save me. Let go of the root. There's a long pause. And the man hanging by the root says, is anyone else up there? This is us when we come to Scripture sometimes. Is we want more or different, we're not satisfied with what God's already given us. We aren't satisfied with sometimes the hard commands he calls us to obey. We aren't satisfied with the way we struggle with sin. If God gave you victory over the sin you struggle with the way you want, you would not pray and plead. You would not learn forgiveness. You would be ungracious to your children because you would wonder why they're not perfect like you. Have you ever thought that your battle with sin is in fact the means for rich grace in your life? Have you ever considered that your children not obeying you quickly teaches you how bad you are and how faithful God is? Can you consider 
that God has put us in a broken world to be light against darkness, not to have a bright light world where we just fit in. God's grace is so rich. Trust that God has given you all that you need to engage life in your home, life in this world, life in this church with a joy and a satisfaction with what he tells us in his scripture. God has given you all that you need in his word. And probably most importantly, be satisfied with who God is. And stop trying to make him a domesticated puppy dog who pleases you. God is meant to be worshipped, submitted to. You are not submitting to him if you take and tweak him and change him. If you're taking and trying to edit what you see in the scripture, if you do not like how scripture braces you and confronts you and challenges you in your sin, then you are not satisfied with God and who he is. When God reveals himself to be all sovereign over salvation to Jonah, Jonah's response when he finally gets rescued from that fish is to say, God, you are the Lord of salvation. That is the repentance moment for Jonah. I think for many of us, we want a God who is like us rather than recognizing that God wants a people who is like him. Come to scripture and be satisfied with how God presents himself. Delight in it. And if you find it distasteful to you, recognize it is not the God of the Bible who needs to change. It is you and your tastes. Let's come to scripture, under the scripture, looking to glorify and worship the king of scripture. Respond with faith and obedience. Trust that God has given you all that you need and be satisfied and delight in the God who reveals himself through the scripture. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this moment of condemnation that teaches us not to be like these religious hypocrites. Father, it is so easy to try to craft an understanding of you that is twisting you into ways that satisfy our desires rather than recognizing that you are exactly who you should be and that should be satisfying to us. Father, we often find ourselves cold and disinterested towards your scriptures. Forgive us for not having an appetite that, that enjoys the hard and difficult things that we don't appreciate at first and forcing ourselves to submit to them. Father, I pray that at its base, our church would find itself deeply satisfied with who you are as revealed in Scripture, finding contentment in the battle to be like you rather than trying to make you like us. Father, give our church a thirst for the revealed Scriptures, finding them both satisfying and gloriously revealing of a God who's worth worshiping. Father, forgive us for pride that makes Scripture fit our reasoning. Forgive us for the pride of place that calls you to worship us and serve us and praise to you on that basis. Father, instead, I ask this simple request. Make our church a place that lifts you high, that first worships you, and then finds every grace and undeserved goodness and kindness from heaven. Lord, help us to love you faithfully, to love your word, and to delight in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.